Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart and the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He even he will even be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. All right, let me repeat the final verse of the hymn we just sang because it is such it is so appropriate for where the Holy Spirit will be stepping us into in Hebrews chapter 6. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt and when and where, until thy blessed face I see, thy rest, thy joy, thy glory share. Hebrews chapter 6 brings us into a place in this letter to the Hebrews that is a deep place of caution, admonishment. As I indicated last week, in our study of Hebrews, it's like on, you're on a roller coaster. <laughs> because the author is first rebuking his hearers. Now to give us all the orientation that we need to have to really understand the context of this letter, this is being written from, and I'm, ask me about this later, I already may, uh, Barnabas is the author, the man who was companion with Paul uh, in ministry, and he is writing from Italy many years after he and his nephew Mark had gone to North Africa. They had ministered principally to Jewish background people in North Africa, but not exclusively. And they had started many, many, many churches across North Africa. And in the meantime, as those people were steadfast in their loyalty to Jesus and being public about what the gospel was, the persecution grew and grew and grew and grew, and they became weary. They became tired. They lost their energy, and they were drawn by a Jewish cult, not 
even what would today be called Judaism, or the, they're being drawn by a Jewish cult that actually elevated the worship of angels. That is why at the opening portion of the letter to the Hebrews, Barnabas takes the time to rebuke that whole utter nonsense. Don't you understand that angels will be your servants in the kingdom? They're not to be worshipped. That's demonism. <laughs> angels will serve you. You won't be serving them. And so he lays that in front of, and he's, he's then offered them encouragement. Hey, God has a rest awaiting us, a kingdom. Just as he worked for six days in the creation, and on the seventh day he rested, and joining him in that wonderful paradise of rest were Adam and Eve, and we don't know how long that was, but Adam and Eve actually resided in that place of rest, that paradise with the Lord until the fall of man. Well, God has promised us another rest. We have a great retirement program laid out for us. Don't turn away in unbelief. Believe God. Don't imitate your forefathers. Your forefathers came out of Egypt. Your forefathers, God was keeping his promise to Abraham of delivering his people from Egypt. He sent them to Egypt, 70-some people, and now 400 years later, he's ushering them out of Egypt, two and a half to four million people. And they witnessed their God completely destroy Egypt. The most powerful, wealthy nation that they knew of on the planet, they watched their God turned Egypt into a trash dump to the point where the 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. And that's when Pharaoh said, get yourself out of here. And so as they left, the Egyptian people, as shocking as this, the Egyptian people actually poured out their 400 years of back wages on them. They left Egypt, a trash dump Egypt, laden down with wealth, they get up to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh, insanely, oh, let's bring those people back. What have we done? What did I do? And so he chases after them with his army, and you all know the account. Moses, take your rod and stand up by the water, stand on that rock by the water, lift up your rod. And what? he didn't even tell Moses what was going to happen. Just said, go do this. He did it, and the waters of the Red Sea parted, and Israel walked between the walls of water, and they got completely through. An insane Pharaoh actually believed that the God of the Hebrews would hold those waters, walls of water up for him too. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, well... Exodus 15 is that psalm of rejoicing as Israel has turned back and they watch the walls of water collapse on Pharaoh and his army. And all of Exodus 15 is a psalm of rejoicing. And then God supplies them with water. He supplies them with manna, which is called angels' food in the psalms. And two years later, they get up to Kadesh Barnea, the southern part of the promised land, 
and they sent 12 spies in. The 12 spies all came back, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they all said, this is a place of outrageous blessing. We can't believe this is so wonderful, so wonderful, so wonderful. But 10 of those 12 spies says, but uh, uh, they got walls around their cities, and they got lots of people. Well, I don't think we can handle this. Well, what about Egypt? There's no generation of people that ever saw the hand of God's power and wisdom as they had witnessed, and yet they didn't believe that the God who had done that to Egypt could handle Canaan, which was frankly minor league in comparison. And so they got to spend another 38 years in the wilderness wandering around while that generation of unbelief died off and their children (laughs) could conquer the land under God's power. And that's the book of Joshua. And they conquered the land. And what does the writer of the Hebrews say? What does Barnabas say? Don't be like your forefathers who had the promise, place, and they turned away because of their unbelief. Don't be like them. God has a rest available for you that you will step into and experience great blessing. And so we've gone up, we've gone down, we've gone up, we've gone down, we've gone up, and here we are He has talked about, he's begun the discussion of Jesus in chapter 5 as our great high priest. We have a representative, a defense attorney standing in the presence of the Father campaigning for us. By the way, and the Father is just as earnest about blessing us as our high priest, Jesus, is in, in inciting that blessing. It's all working together. It's all so wonderful. And he is in the close of chapter 5, verses 12 to the close of the chapter, he says, for though by this time he's been laying all this out, and then he does, oh, wait, 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 wait. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Oh, man, I need to go back and do the basics with you again. I've already done this with you once. I've already done this, but now i got to go back and retrain. Do I really need to do this? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God, the basic, basic, basics. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. You've gone back to infancy. You've gone back to infancy. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age to grown-ups, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil in the same way that a child learns to eat solid food. And it's a learned thing. You've learned to eat solid food. You've done that. You've done that. Don't go back. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I'm not talking about food food. I'm talking about spiritual food and how to navigate the spiritual environment that you are in, which is very dangerous, very difficult, but God has supplied to you every resource you need. Therefore, okay, 
Have you heard my rebuke? Have you heard my rebuke? Have you heard my rebuke? Therefore, leaving, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, we're going to set aside the basics that you've already learned. You've already been tutored in it. Don't make me lay again the foundation. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, to maturity. Not laying, again, the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith to our God. How do you step into the kingdom? You repent of your dead works. I don't care how self-righteous you were, how good a law keeper you were as a Jew before. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. So let's do what you, let's be reminded of the things that you've already learned. You set aside your not good enough righteousness in favor of what Christ provides. Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You abandon your dead works in favor of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, do I need to go over that again? Of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Are you, gonna, are you my readers, are you going to let me take you on to the next level? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame." What's he talking about? Here he is talking about people who have made a public, open confession of faith in Christ. They have grown in the Lord. They've been useful instruments in God's hands. They're people that we looked at and said, wow, God is using them, God is using them, God is using them. And then they fell back. Then they fell back. We can't fix that. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, Somewhat different circumstance, but the pattern is the same. If your brother offends you, go to your brother in private. Go to your brother and say, this is what you did to offend me, to cause me to stumble, to create an issue between us. Will you hear me? Can we be reconciled in this? And if he will hear you, fine. Leave it, get it done, and leave. If he will not hear you, then get another brother or two and take them with you for a second confrontation. And if he will not hear them, then take it to the church, to that body of faithful believers that you've been functioning in. Take it to the church. And if he will hear the church, fine, good. If he will repent and hear the fine. If he will not, then you put him out. Never in that passage in Matthew 18 does Jesus raise the issue of whether this is an authentic brother. And neither does Barnabas. Sometimes there can be people that have put on a great display and we think they're authentic brothers. You know what? It's not up to us to determine that. We won't. We can't know. Look, for example, at Judas Iscariot. 
They're in the upper room. And Jesus says, these men have been together at least three years in ministry. One of you will betray me. Nobody points at Judas and said, well, it's got to be that guy. In fact, they're all reclining on divans around a circular table. By the way, we're coming to the Lord's Supper at the close of our meeting. This is the Last Supper. They're reclining on divans. John is reclining on a divan in front of Jesus. We know that because he's going to lean back and put his head on Jesus' chest. <laughs> and Jesus said, because he's going to ask, who is it, Lord, that's going to betray you? It is the one to whom I give this up. And he takes this piece of bread, he put, drips it, and he hands it to Judas Iscariot. Well, who's the only other person within reach? The person reclining behind Jesus. Jesus is the host. Judas Iscariot is in the place of the guest of honor. He hands the sop to Judas. Judas drinks, eats it down, and it says, and at that moment, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up and walked right out of the room. Question, why didn't John the apostle tackle him? Conjecture. Uh, I could not have understood proper. No, 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 no. It couldn't be Judas. No, no, no. He's the guy. He's our treasurer. He holds the money bag. He's the most trusted guy. And yet he was not ever an authentic. He was always a son of perdition. He never was authentic. Jesus had earlier told the apostles when he offered them an an open door to leave from following him, and Peter said, Where are we going to go, Lord? We have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to them, Have I not chosen you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So Judas Iscariot was never an authentic follower. But then within a few hours, you've got the apostle Peter, who said, Everybody else might run away, but not me. Peter denies Jesus three times that same night. Is Peter real? Is Peter authentic? What does Jesus do after his resurrection? He actually goes out of his way to restore Peter, and Peter allowed him, he cooperated with that and was fully restored. But we don't know. We don't have an ultimate insight into people. It's not our job to. Our job is to relate to people based on their words and works. So what does he say? They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it is impossible for us to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. We can't fix that problem. What do you do? You do exactly what Jesus lays out in Matthew 18. You put them out of the body. What does God want to, what does God's standard operating procedure for driving people to repentance? He puts them in isolation. He puts them in isolation. That's one of the great benefits of our jails and prisons. <laughs> Is it puts people in isolation. And a whole more people come to faith in Jesus in the jails and the prisons than any place else. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. 
A farmer loves a productive field. That's how he makes his living. He eats from it and he takes the, the goods to market. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected. The plot of ground is rejected and near to being cursed. Near to being cursed. Near to being, not cursed. Near to being cursed. Whose end is to be burned. What do you do if you own a piece of ground and you've sown good seed in it, but the weeds and the thorns and all show up, grow up and choke off what you sowed into it? What do you do? You burn it off in the fall when it's brought forth the product you don't want you burn it off not because you hate the ground but because you are trying to make it productive you burn it off in the fall when everything is dried up hoping to burn up the seeds of the weeds that choked off the good crop and so that's what you do. You want to, let me give you some motivation here. Do you want to be burned off? Okay. You don't, you don't, you don't want to be burned off? Okay. Stay loyal to Jesus. Be productive. Be productive in his kingdom. Be productive in his kingdom. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. This is a very sobering picture that he's just painted for them. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner. Did I just punch you in the face? Yes, I punched you in the face. I verbally punched you in the face. But, I believe you're going to respond positively. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. You're not false brethren. You're authentic brethren, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown in his name, and that you minister to the saints and do minister. You have a track record that is very admirable. Now you are being drawn away from what you did in great power and great as authentic servants of Jesus, you're being drawn away because of the pressure of the persecution. You're being drawn away. You've gone into hiding as far as you're professing Christ publicly. You've gone into hiding. Do you know what? God has not forgotten your former obedience. He hasn't forgotten it. He wants to pour out kingdom blessing on you when you step into his presence, into that forthcoming place of rest. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered, have served, have ministered to the saints, and do minister, do serve. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence Keep putting one foot in front of the other. I don't understand marathons. I tell you what, folks, you will never catch me running a marathon because that idea of just defying your own <laughs> pain to keep putting one front foot in front of the other when you don't have to doesn't even... Well, here is a marathon that is we are, we are running towards the kingdom. And God says, every step, 
Do you have a pain in your side? Are your lungs hurting? Is your heart pounding? Yes, 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 yes. But it is going to be worth it when you get to the end of the race. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You've served one another. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Keep your eye on the goal. Keep your eye on the goal and keep putting one foot in front of the other. Defy the pain in your side. Defy your pounding heart. Defy your lungs that are... And keep putting one foot in front of the other because the day is coming when you will be glad you did. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to this full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish. Don't lay us down beside the track. But imitate those who through faith and patience, faith and patience, inherit the promises. Faith and patience. One step of faith followed by another step of faith, followed by another step of faith, followed by another step of faith, followed by another step of faith. faith, And that is a patient faith. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. How earnest is God about keeping his promises of kingdom glory? Well, let me give you an example, says Barnabas, Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. When you are brought into a courtroom, to testify. What do they do? They step up to you and they hold a Bible in front of you. We want you to tell the truth. We are expecting you, when you take the witness stand, that you are going to tell the truth. And not only will we hear you, are we trusting you to do that? We're asking you to place your hand on this book, this book of truth, and take an oath, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You won't sneak in any lies. You won't withhold things that we need to know. You're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so we will believe you, and we will also trust that confirmation of your oath. What does God do when he made this promise to Abraham? Abraham, blessing, I will bless you. Did God put his hand on? Yeah, he did. He put his hand on himself. Blessing, I will bless you. God took an oath on himself because there was nothing greater than himself that he could take an oath. <laughs> What's he going to? Oh, this is, here's, a, here's a Bible, God. Put your, well, who spoke those words? I did. He's taking an oath on himself. I'm the God of integrity. 
taking an oath on my own integrity. This is a double assurance to you, Abraham, that I will keep my promise. Blessing, I will bless you. And he makes that same double oath promise to us. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Okay, no questions. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, his bare word and his oath, by two immutable things, things that cannot be changed or doubted, in which it is impossible for God to lie. When God says something, that's it. When he takes an oath on something, that's also it. By two things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. How firm can our confidence be that God will keep his promise double firm? We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge. We have fled to him for refuge. Can we trust him to be our defender? Our, our, yes, we can. He is the one who defends, who supplies. That by two, thing, by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, comfort, strength who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. We have the promise of coming kingdom glory, and he will keep that promise. He will keep that promise. He will keep that promise. This hope we have as an, as an anchor of the soul, an anchor of the soul. Our soul in this world, we tend to get pushed around by every wave, by every wind. Oh, but when you have an anchor, that holds you in place. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, immovable, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That Where is that anchor? It is in the very throne room of God. Where the forerunner, behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become High priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll get on to the Melchizedek promise in the next chapter. But who, where, what is our anchor? What is our proof? We have a resurrected Redeemer who entered into the presence of the Father and could say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm going to the presence of the, the God the Father handed off to God the Son the, the day-to-day direction, administration of the kingdom in heaven and on earth. He is our anchor. He is the one that supplies us with steadfast. In the midst of the storm, we have an anchor that keeps us safe. And it doesn't matter what things look like to our human eyes. With our spirit eyes, we know we are being defended, shepherded, protected. And his ultimate goal for us is to step us into outrageous, immeasurable kingdom glory. He really wants to pour out kingdom glory on us. 
we are coming to the Lord's table. This is a steadfast promise. Let me read this to you from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. That's easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. In the Last Supper, Jesus says to the apostles, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As sons of Abraham, as those whose forefathers had received the Ten Commandments, from Moses' hand coming down off Mount Sinai, they had been under, they had the promise of the Redeemer from before Abraham. I, Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives and shall stand on the earth, and though after my flesh worms destroy this body, serve from within my own flesh, I will see God. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. They didn't receive the old covenant until hundreds of years after they had operated under the old covenant, and the point of the old covenant was to show to frustrate them. Who can you keep the Ten Commandments? You shall not covet your neighbor's life, wife, stuff, <laughs> reputation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall. The harder we try, the behinder we get. All that the law does was sh- is show us our desperate need for redemption. Well, that had already been promised, and it's going, this is Job 19, excuse me, Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah is the prophet. Most of Israel has already been taken off into the Babylonian captivity. The 10 northern tribes have been taken off by the Assyrians about 100 years before. And now Judah and Benjamin, most of them have been taken off by the Babylonians, And Jeremiah is speaking to the people that are still there in Jerusalem. And they will not hear him. They will not hear him. They will not hear him. They they eventually kidnap him, take him to Alexandria, Egypt, and murder him there. They don't want to hear what he's saying. Because it is words of rebuke because of their hardness of heart. But he says this in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Not like the covenant from Mount Sinai. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. They shattered the Ten Commandments in every conceivable way. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will actually transform your inner person. I won't just speak words from out here. I'll be speaking words from in here. I will put my law in their minds and write write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord! Hey, get saved! It won't be necessary. For they shall all, they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity 
and their sin I will remember no more. You don't have Moses coming down off the, of Mount Sinai saying, oh, our God is the super forgiving God. No, here's the law. The law condemned them and it was designed to condemn them so they would run to the God of Job, the God of Abraham, who was the God of mercy. And Jesus is saying, or excuse me, the Lord through Jeremiah is saying, we're going to set aside that format of the old covenant. We're going to institute a new covenant format. And have I told you I'm merciful? Have I told you that I love to forgive? Have I told you that I love you? Have I told you that I have grace, mercy for you? Oh, that's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. And what does Jesus say in the upper room? This is the new covenant. I am initiating the new covenant. By what I'm about to do on the cross, I am carrying out the act that makes the new covenant possible. And I'm giving you this bread. I'm giving you this cup as a format that you can use to spread this message. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, this is my body broken for you. Speaking of the matzah bread. Here's the gospel, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you to create a welcome. The law condemned, I am the source of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace.